And welcome back to another episode of Prerequisites. I am your host, Dr. Zach Cruzy, and I am so glad that you are all here and that you've continued to join us throughout this season. This has been a really, really rewarding experience for me, hosting this program and ex- assembling this incredible slate of guests who've had so many interesting and wonderful ideas. And in this episode, I am speaking with Professor Justice Neeland of the Michigan State University Department of English. Justice and I are talking about his uh, recent book, Happiness by Design, Modernism and Media in the Ames Era, and this conversation is really wild. So uh, for those of you who are familiar with my work, you know that I do contemporary American literature and culture, but I'm also really interested and invested in visual media, particularly film and comic books and so on and so forth. But a sidebar for me is my lifelong fascination with industrial films. So I got really interested in industrial films because of uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000, believe it or not. That show was always, you know, airing industrial shorts about a variety of topics and, you know, and riffing on them and spoofing them in, you know, hilarious and and delightful ways. The takeaway for me, besides the laughs, was that these were films that were incredibly interesting and doing really bizarre, outrageous stuff uh, in the mid-20th century. And it's something, it's a film form that I've been thinking about for a really long time. So... When I learned about Justice's project as he was wrapping up the publication for this uh, early in my years at MSU, uh, I became immediately invested and interested in what he was talking about. Our conversation here is pretty wide-ranging as it relates to the book. Among them, we talk about the ways in which the Ameses and other designers of their ilk and of their era uh, influenced not just the design of furniture and consumer products, but the ways in which we learn and experience space. We also talk a lot about how the type of design that the Ameses uh, took part in had broad-reaching implications for the ways in which Americans con- conceived of citizenship. We also talk a lot about the ways in which this approach to design impacted interdisciplinarity and how we think about institutions. And finally, we close out by thinking about sort of the long-range applications of a project like this and what it means for us as scholars and thinkers about visual media, how reapproaching the Ameses in industrial film in, film in general asks us to sort of reconceptualize our notion of modernism and what it meant to be and what democratic liberalism looked like in the mid-20th century. And there's just a lot of meat on this bone. So if you are interested in pedagogy, you are interested in mid-20th century history, if you are interested in uh, design, if you are interested in film history, this is the episode for you. There is so much meat on this bone, and it was a really wonderful conversation. And I'm so excited for you all to hear it. Uh, On a final sort of bittersweet note here, Uh, This is my final episode of Prerequisites. Uh, This is the end of the season, and I've moved on to greener pastures. But I'm so grateful for the time that I've been able to spend with you all and that you all have spent with me as we've engaged with all the exciting ideas that have come across our desks here and across our ear holes at Prerequisites for this first season. So I'm excited to see what happens next for Prerequisites and who takes over the show and the the new and thrilling directions that they will take this in as they continue to explore questions in the humanities and how scholars at Michigan State University are handling those questions in exciting 
and innovative ways. So thank you all so much for joining me. We pick up the conversation in progress where I've just asked Justice uh, what sort of brought the project about, what inspired him. Enjoy. My mom, when I grew up, was at a, at a certain point, she decided to go into the antique business. And so she started an antique store in our basement. And so I spent a lot of my adolescence being dragged to antique mall after antique mall in northwest Iowa and eastern Nebraska and parts of South Dakota and um, had these sort of encounters with products of mid-century design in my teens that were my kind of first encounter with a version of a modernist aesthetic. So in fact, even though, you know, I've, I've written books on, this is my fourth book and, you know, I, I've written on literary modernism and modernism and the visual arts. My first actual encounter with modernism as such came in sort of through um, material culture. Um, so it was, this was really a longstanding desire of mine to find at some point a time in my career where it made sense to, to write about mid-century design. Now, as you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm a modernist. I'm a scholar of affect theory in particular. I've written about the film noir. So I've thought a lot about sort of the terrain of negative affect at mid-century. And so if we sort of go with Mike Davis and think about the flip side of noir being sunshine or happiness, um, this project seemed uh, appropriate. So I, I got interested specifically in thinking about the problem of how to talk about films made by designers and maybe this gets to your question about industrial film that is there seemed to be a kind of gap within film studies for how to understand films like that so do you talk about it uh, you know sort of dutifully within the methods of film studies do you think about these films by designers within traditions of art history within sort of theories of visual culture within architecture and design history within sort of theories of corporations or, or corporate history. And my answer in this project was, was in a way to do all of it, <laughs> to, 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 to talk about these films through all of those modes. But I, I can say within film studies in particular, there's been some amazing recent work, not that recent now, but for example, by Heidi Wasson and, and Charles Ackland around so-called useful cinema, which was a way of kind of recuperating this vast terrain of, you know, quote unquote, non-theatrical cinema, which had long been, you know, overlooked by, by film historians and media scholars. So, you know, a book like Useful Cinema, Learning with the Lights Out, you know, there have been these really great recent um, edited collections around industrial film, useful film, educational film, and so on. I saw a, a relatively easy way to kind of link up my interest in the mid-century with that kind of burgeoning uh, arena of, of scholarship. I can say there there wasn't much, however, around sort of furniture films. So, for example, in the Eames's case, um, and one of the things, you know, we could talk about is you know, to what extent the book is, you know, kind of an Eames-specific project and why at a certain point I decided to expand beyond that. But I got really interested in thinking about, you know, these films, these sponsored films that the Eameses made for Herman Miller and what exactly was happening in those films. So, like, these extraordinarily carefully crafted objects that seem to me to open up 
um, something that I, I didn't really have a, a language to explain. And that would require me again to sort of draw on a range of different uh, disciplines and um, disciplinary history. So that's the project came about, right? How to account for films made by designers and industrial film is, is one way of doing that, but it's not the only one. One of the things that, that most excited me about what I was reading, you know, and I mentioned this before, I suppose, but is the notion that films by designers, they not only this, this, there's, there's not just this object, but they also design sort of a sense of how to behave, how to act, right? Like they are prescriptive. Exactly. They, they are prescriptive exactly. in a certain way. You know, and these are films that, as I understand them, and if I'm, if I'm misunderstanding something, you know, please, please redirect me. But as I understand films like this, whether they're about furniture or whether it's about, you know, big conference presentations, you know, like the, you know, the, the conference booth or, um, just product packaging or all these things. I mean, they mm-hmm. are, they are instructive in, in, in certain kinds of ways, but they are, the, but they're instructive in a way that is pervasive. So one of the things I wanted to, specifically ask you about is sort of the democratic elements of this or the, the allegedly yeah. democratic elements of, of this sort of managed life, right? I mean, you're made to feel as though you've made choices, but have you made choices or have you been instructed <laughs> to, to make specific choices, right? I mean, I mean, so how, how, does it, how do you reconcile or how do you uh, approach that sort of democratic element that, that is part of this? Yeah, this, it's such a smart question and it really kind of cuts to the core. Of the book. I mean, I think one of the things that you, you can say about many industrial films, and this is part of the reason that for a long time, I think film historians just thought that they, they kind of condescended to them or thought they were better than them is because on the face of it, they can be um, wildly prescriptive to the point of camp, you know, didactic and, and sort of closed objects, right? Which, you know, have a very clear, you know, rhetorical point of view and, and don't seem really open to interpretation. I didn't, I didn't see them that way in, in a number of the films of the Eameses, and we can talk through a, a few of them, even though I, you know, I, I, I take that point. But I, but I can also say that there's something in the didacticism of industrial films that appealed to designers like the Eameses, because part of what they were interested in was linking their film and media production to broader pedagogical experiments and ambitions. So for example, one of the things that, you know, there are two in specific chapters. The the first one, which is about the sponsored films made by Herman Miller, you know, explores how those films are, you know, they're didactic and prescriptive in a certain way, but they're also allegories of a particular kind of lifestyle, right? They're, they're not just allegories of consumption, but they're also allegories of, of the happy couple that made them, right? Mm-hmm. But in the second chapter, I turn, and, and there are also allegories of um, the relationship between, as the Eames has sought, between film and a, a more vast or expansive media environment. So the, there are films about furniture, but there are also films about the networks of uh, relationships in which the furniture was conceptualized for the Eameses, right? They're, they're sort of always laying bare a broader media environment. And, and the sort of unpacking of that gave me some, you know, kind of critical or hermeneutic work to do beyond simply the didactic message. Second chapter, um, talks specifically about how the designers get sort of interested in overt acts of pedagogical reform, right? So for example, you know, the film that I talk about at length in the introduction, which you read, A Communications Primer from 1953, which is really at the kind of conceptual heart of, I think, 
the Indus work, that begins not as this 60 millimeter film, which it eventually becomes, but as this kind of node in this experiment in art education involving a range of um, multimedia forms and and innovations. And and somehow Eames and Alexander Girard, another designer, and George Nelson, then the director of design at Herman Miller, get get sort of called on by this guy Lamar Dodd at the University of Georgia to remake their his sort of state art education class, right? And they do so in this sort of fascinating way. So a question for me is how did it happen? that these these designers who are making plywood chairs become positioned as sort of uh, sort of pedagogical reformers that can kind of shake things up, right? Well, the, the answer to that question is a much more complicated one, but it has to do with the way, and this is, you know, one of the theses of the, of the book, I suppose, you know, these mid-century designers, and the Eameses are paradigmatic here, become this strange new kind of public intellectual or knowledge worker, to use the term that was coined at the time, with this global visibility and, and prestige in the Cold War period. And at this point, then, designers aren't just um, making things, right? The role of design itself expands from the making of objects to this kind of work of citizen formation, subject building, the shaping of perception, and so on, right? The makers of their, their – they think that they're making post-war citizens, where they're, they're prophets of a kind of um, liberal humanism. And this is where we get to the kind of democratic connection, because one of the things I try to do in that second chapter is show how a number of these pedagogical experiments and the kinds of sort of worldly perception that the Eameses thought they were teaching students, mm-hmm. um, the sort of expansiveness of vision that they thought they were inculcating, that overlaps with this sort of high watermark of, you know, general education reform in the U.S. And so, you know, if you've ever, you know, if you're familiar with some of those sort of gen ed schemes, I mean, this sort of rhetoric of expanding the horizons of students, getting them to think beyond sort of narrow confines of discipline and specialization, all of that, the Eameses and Nelson and these others are, are picking up. So in that way, there are, there are a range of ways in which the didacticism is, is more complicated than it seems. Nonetheless, you're right, like, especially these sort of multi-screen experiments of the Eameses, for example, at the U.S. Um, National Exhibition in Moscow in 1959 or at the New York World's Fair in the 1960s. I mean, they're, they're often framed, and I think understandably so, as kind of forms of perceptual experimentation, man or a kind of false form of um, expanded cinema, right, and, and sort of positioned against these more liberatory or, or, or freeform experiments of the counterculture. And here, and this is the last thing I'll say on this, you know, a book that is really good on this that came out while I was writing my own book is a book by Fred Turner called The Democratic Surround. Uh, uh, Fred teaches at Stanford. And part of what Turner is arguing is, and it goes to question about didacticism, there, there emerges that mid-century um, this notion that rather than just sort of telling people what to think in a highly didactic way, designers can create multimedia presentations that present a kind of menu of options and can engage spectators, perceivers, consumers in acts of choosing. They, they sort of 
test out forms of decision making uh, and choice. But again, that is a kind of choice within constraints, right? It's a kind of choosing within uh, a menu of options that are themselves predetermined. So it's not, you know, wild freedom. And in fact, you know, in these moments when I'm moving through some of these pedagogical experiments and the Eameses are sort of reflecting on, you know, how students are responding to these images that they're showing in rapid succession and so on. The, the students are themselves chafing at the fact that they, they, they felt like their self-expression was, was curtailed. And Eames always goes out of his way to say, you know, expression only, I mean, he's allergic to the sort of rhetoric of romantic self-expression. And, and, and he, he always sees the students' capacities as, and their freedoms as framed within limits. And there's a certain kind of, uh, that, that's consistent as I see it or understand it with a certain mode of, of democratic liberalism that Eames is, um, exemplary of. Yeah. Yeah, that, that freedom within limits and that you should be very satisfied with what you have, right? Exactly. So, uh, or constraints. Means we call them the productive nature of constraints. Yeah, which is something that I think is is often uh, – I, I don't know what your experience with this is, but that's a phrase that I hear very often, right? Like the freedom of being constrained, right? Like if you're just held back in certain ways, if we, if we limit you here, here, and here, and we tell you you can't use these words or these images or these ideas, then what we've actually done is freed you up to explore things in new and exciting ways, right? I mean, that's interesting, and there's a certain level of plausibility to that, but that's also – I don't know. It's the sort of thing that makes my skin feel a little bit itchy, right? Like I hear you, but maybe not. Like yes. maybe, I didn't, maybe I didn't need those things to begin with, right? No, understandably. I mean, there there is a there's a um yeah. I I, I hear your discomfort with that kind of rhetoric. Yeah. And and all I can say is that you know, as Charles Eames, for example, understood design process, it always was was honed or sharpened by particular constraints. And he did have a, and, 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 you know, the other members of the Eames office, it wasn't just Charles Eames, it was Ray Eames, his design partner wife, and a range of really talented people that he worked with. They were consistently hostile to a kind of rhetoric of self-expression. And they actually felt like they were in a position to teach people what was, what, what they should value, right? Yeah. Teach people what, um, what the good life Entailed, so there is a kind, you know, it, they do have an idea about value uh, as it's incarnated in the things that they design, and and one of the frustrations that they encounter as the 50s turn into the 60s, you know, is um, this, you know, sort of, I mean, it's basically the sort of sort of fracturing of the liberal consensus and this sort of sense that this sort of universalizing of value is no longer possible. And the designer's role in creating, you know, like trying to figure out what human needs are so that they can be satisfied by particular design objects and how to elevate taste and so on. You know, what they're, what they're confronted with is a sort of vast multiplicity of different and often conflicting human needs. Right. And that's, and and that's, that's the sort of terrain of politics. Right. And, and sort of, sort of constitutive and political, antagonism yeah. but yeah i mean you know it, it, like one of the the easy ways to think about you know the, the way i'm thinking about the images in the book is you know they're, they're sort of guides to the mid-century good life and and designed for them as a process of sort of discerning what is the good making good things and then sort of shaping a consumer's 
attitude towards them. But rather than it just being restricted to consumption, right, teaching people how to consume what some expert, you know, know it all um, deems good. What, what I'm trying to do is, is sort of shift that model of happiness through the things that you consume towards a kind of happiness that the Eameses embodied as they made things, right? A happiness yeah. in a, a certain kind of creative production and a certain kind of creative production that worked always across disciplines, sort of complicating tidy disciplinary boundaries and across media. Yeah. Well, I, I want to come back to that, that happiness and, and contentment stuff. Yeah. But- but you can, I can see like why it would be so troubling to work to come into sort of the countercultural moment of the 1960s form because it's yeah. designed by its by its nature. And I think that you say some you either say this or you say something similar to this is taking discordant elements and then streamlining them, making them work, right. making them flow, like uh, to to make them efficient in, in certain ways. Um, so yes. of course, any sort of discord would be unsettling to someone who's who's dedicated absolutely. To Absolutely. I mean, and yeah, the whole terrain of like, uh, I mean, for the Eames is it, everything can be subjected to a form of rational problem solving, right? Mm-hmm. And so the idea that there is sort of widespread irrationality or sort of obstacles to, you know, technical perfect, the sort of perfection and technical optimization of particular processes, that's extraordinarily <laughs> frustrating. For designers like the Eames and, and a couple, you know, at, at several moments in the book, I kind of stage these um, impasses between that kind of rationalized problem solving, which is a kind of like technocratic mindset in the in the Cold War period, and you know these other discordant energies of the counterculture, and it happens in a couple of instances in these you know really fascinating design conferences, which I take as case studies in the third and fourth chapter. But yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's just it's it's uh it's an incredible thing to to think through. So so come back to this um talking about sort of uh being guides for happiness. I mean there's a certain like sense of like suzerainty that the Eames is sort of seem to take on or like prescribing, you know, like a prescribing might be too strong of a word, but uh strongly suggesting how models, let's say, modeling. Yeah, let's model how much we would all enjoy having philosopher kings and and uh, an expert-driven culture that that shows us the appropriate way to the good life. So, um, so I guess you know, talk to us a little bit about sort of underwrites a lot of that, and where they and what that and what the implications of that might be. And then, I, then I really want to build that into what you were discussing with sort of the challenges that come at some of these these later conferences and how that bucked up against some um, resistance, as it were. Going back to the issue of modeling, right? The way I'm thinking about the Eames's film and media practice more broadly is this is a way of modeling a kind of ha- happiness within particular social conditions. So this is a modeling a kind of happiness within the conditions of an emergent post-industrial society that requires, um, or that's marked by a sort of dissolving of boundaries between work and play. That's mm-hmm. marked by, you know, desire for the communication of, knowledge across disciplinary borders, the transmission of information, right? It's being happy, but in a particular media-rich environment, right? And so the Eameses are in the kind of happiness business as they're exported, as their films and their furniture and their designed objects are exported globally. They're, They're teaching people around the world, right, how to be happy in these transformed media environments of the post-war 
period. And, and they're, you know, they're circulating. The images of Eames are circulating as models for a particular kind of U.S. mid-century good life. Um, you know, in a way that you know, it, it's sort of a, it, it, this tremendous capital behind, you know, these, these models that the Eameses uh, instantiate and they're, and they're mobbed up with, you know, some of the, the primary, inst- you know, these massive institutions of the mid-century period, not just, you know, art institutions like MoMA, but major corporations like IBM and Westinghouse, they're working for the state, you know, they're working, they're doing, you know, a lot of this um, multi-screen experimentation is, is sponsored by the United States um, information agency. So there's a, you know, there's also a kind of deeply institutionalized version of the good life that the Eames is exemplified, right? The other thing I would say, which I, I don't think we have talked about yet is that, but it's clear in the, the communications primer that this kind of happiness that the Eames is model isn't really thinkable outside of the new kind of mid-century prestige of communication. Right. And, and communication theory and the rise of communication studies. So in this moment, the designers get sort of framed as these master communicators of the Cold War period. And, that, and that's how they think about their filmmaking practice. Right. And there again, you can think about how, um, you know, this sort of fantasy of therapeutic communication is really kind of abetting a certain form of U.S. mid-century uh, geopolitical hegemony and imperialism, right? That's part of what they're, they're doing, right? And, and there's all kinds of ways in which the kind of therapeutic model of communication that the Eameses were invested in, you know, is looked at from a certain perspective, horrifying, mm-hmm. right? So for example, I mean, you know, and connected to some of the most biting critiques of tech, technological Rationality. So, you know, in the introduction, I, I spent some time talking about Herbert Marcuse's, you know, one dimensional man and, and his sort of critique of happy functionalism and so on. And I think that, you know, some of the things that Marcuse says, uh, are, are fair enough critiques of the world that the Eameses, um, inhabit. But I'm trying to, I, I suppose, open up other dimensions of their version of the happy beyond simply a kind of uh, technocratic control paradigm. That was one of the things I was kind of pressing on there, whether I wanted to mm-hmm. wanted you to discuss It's sort of like that, that institutionalized nature of a lot of these things, because it, it, it seems to me that so much of what you're talking about here, it moves beyond sort of the materiality of the objects that the Eames has produced. It moves beyond the materiality of, you know, a very interesting looking clock or uh, a particular, a particular sort of style of architecture, you know, some sort of like open concept home or something like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, those things are, those material things are clearly part and parcel of this and describing what, you know, how you uh, sort of enact or, or interact with the good life. But the institutional elements of this seem to speak to something much more ethereal is probably not the right word, but something much broader that goes beyond, Mm -hmm. that goes beyond this. So, and one of the things you discussed or, or noted earlier was sort of uh, the way that the Eameses sort of saw themselves and many designers sort of saw themselves and acted as pedagogues. Right. So right. so how does that how does that sort of work into the way that we sort of see and sort of navigate institutions now? I mean, we're, I mean, we see that. I mean, interdisciplinarity, obviously, is one way um, because we're all sort of right. talking about interdisciplinarity, interdisciplinarity at one level or another. 
Um, but, you know, are there other ways that that either we as scholars or even our students are constantly sort of moving through the sort of post-Eamesian space? Oh, this is awesome. These are awesome questions. So I'll talk about institutions first and then maybe we talk about interdisciplinarity. One of the one you were asking initially about sort of motivate what motivated the project and, and where the project came from. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say that in both modernist studies, broadly speaking, and in film and media studies, there have been sort of renewed, there's been a renewed attentiveness to thinking carefully and, and in a sort of richly historical way about institutions. And, um, and so one of the, and that, and that involves, you know, it's a kind of demand for a richer, more nuanced form of cultural history. And, and the Eames's, you know, connection to institutional life is, you know, offers a cultural and intellectual story and, you know, a lot of ground to do some, some interesting, some interesting work. There is a very familiar story about modernism at mid-century. The book is on some level trying to, to challenge, which is that, you know, at mid-century, this radical revolutionary aesthetic practice becomes institutionalized and it's becoming institutionalized and subject to sort of state and corporate control becomes uninteresting and um, something that we should care less about. And that sort of story about the mid-century institutionalization of modernism is something that I at once am acknowledging in this book and trying to challenge because what I want to do is say, actually, if you look really carefully at this sort of process of modernism's institutionalization, it's totally nuts. It's, <laughs> it's, it's weird and strange and, and the sort of spaces of, you know, the institutionalization of modernist practice are far weirder, um, and unusual and, and sort of, um, unfamiliar than, than we had imagined and, and marked by conflict and tension and, and so on. So I am sort of at once thinking through and sort of acknowledging this sort of familiar critical story about, you know, the institutionalization of modernism in mid-century and also trying to open that up through this kind of multidisciplinary history that I'm, that I'm telling. In terms of interdisciplinarity, you know, this is, this, this has been for me one of the most complicated and difficult things about this project, which I've been working, you know, it's been, it was like nine years in the making is that because the designers own practices in film and media were multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, and because they thought of their, uh, they, they understood that interdisciplinary practice as a particular sort of, there was like an ethical or moral component to it because they were hostile to specialization and the fragmentation of knowledge into separate regimes, right? There's a, a sort of holistic approach to creative practice that comes out of the way many designers, you know, were trained. I was trying to figure out just as a sort of methodological matter, how can I write a book about mid-century modernism that is as interdisciplinary in its method as this thing that I am attempting, these practices that I'm attempting to describe. And that, you know, for me, as a, a modernist, largely working in film and media studies, 
you know, involved becoming in my own way, multidisciplinary and, and trying to frame a project that would, you know, appeal to modernist scholars, film and media historians, art historians of the mid-century, design and architecture historians, and sort of appease all of those audiences at the same time without, you know, boring any, any of them by sort of, you know, repeating what is already kind of familiar knowledge. And, and that problem of sort of the audience for a, a study that is as interdisciplinary as this was, is, you know, it was a problem from, from the beginning. And it's, I, I think it's one that I never, I'm not completely satisfied that I've solved, but I will say, you know, the book's been out for a year. You know, it's been very well reviewed in, um, a, you know, film and media studies journals, art journals, design journals. So the fact that it's actually getting reviewed in these, the, the, the various disciplines in which I'm trying to intervene in for me is a sign that I at least pulled it off. Yeah. On, on some level, but, but it, you know, it required me sort of pushing myself out of my disciplinary comfort zone on a certain level. Which is, I mean, again, as, as, as you're saying, I mean, part of, part of the whole project here, right? And, and, exactly. You know, and as you're, as you're talking about this, and one of the, you know, again, as I, as I want to say, like, if I'm out of line, you should, you should totally tell me. <laughs> uh, but, but one of the things I was thinking about as you were talking about, especially like at the institutional level and, and thinking through how these things, we still sort of confront these challenges um, now. Like I remember, so at my previous institution, I remember when as sort of a move towards, I, I don't, no one actually said out loud as a move towards interdisciplinarity, but it was a move towards getting students to use the library and think more broadly about this space, right? Like, yeah. One of the first things they did is they took an entire floor, they cleared out all the stacks, and then they made it uh, an inviting uh, multimedia learning space where you can all come in and they have very modern looking chairs. And there's, you know, <laughs> and, and there's like the space age looking desks, you know, with, you yeah. know, with brand new iMacs perched on top of each one. Right. I mean, even that sort of thinking to me as, as sort of embracing sort of this space, this happiness space seems to be sort of sort of baked into thinking about sort of multidisciplinarity and interdisciplinarity and sort of changing the way that we think from a library being a single use building to a multi a multi-purpose building where but we should all be using this space in, in, in an effort towards uh in an effort towards learning, right? Or or producing a certain kind of knowledge or a certain kind of you know widget or whatever the case may be. Right. right. So I don't know if that's too rambling of a thing, but I'm, I guess what I'm wondering. No, no, no. I guess what I'm wondering is, is if that's what, uh, one of the byproducts of this is, is understanding the ways in which institutions don't just reshape the way that we learn, but actually reshape the physical sort of geography of a learning space, like that you come in and you experience it, maybe not specifically in an Eames chair, but a plywood chair that spins around and looks very space agey and you, you, you feel good about where you are, right? Like there's a, there's a there's a, an excitement about sitting in those spaces. So I'm wondering if that's also part of this project in the way that in the ways that sort of design sort of informs like the way that we institute or the ways that design is institutionalized in academic spaces and learning spaces and not knowledge production spaces or whatever that. Oh, that may yeah, be. I see your question. This is an awesome. It's a really smart question. So the the book doesn't take up directly the design of spaces of knowledge production. In any, in any direct way. One, although it, it could have, it could, and I, I'm going to talk about sort of connections between what I do talk about and what you're saying. 
the, the closest moment that I come to talking about that is, you know, in these, there are two chapters, the third and fourth chapter I take as case studies, as new kind of ways of doing film and media historiography at mid-century, these two mid-century design conferences, the International Design Conference in Aspen, and these two vision conferences um, organized by a German emigre designer named Will Burton. And one of the, for me, fascinating things about those chapters is the conference itself becomes this object of conceptual study at mid-century as a particular technique, a particular kind of form of communication within this broader um, communications landscape. And, you know, range of people, Margaret, Margaret Mead is writing about it, writing books about it. UNESCO is publishing books called The Technique of International Conferences and so on. It's connected to this sort of therapeutic model of global communication between nation states as a way of sort of staving off another, you know, global uh, catastrophe, another, another world war. And as those, as the, comp- the, the sort of form, the shape, the space of the conference gets subjected to tech, to sort of technical analysis in the fifties and the sixties, there are these moments when the kind of counterculture comes to town where they're looking specifically at the physical space of these, you know, places where the conferences are held, these, you know, um, uh, conference tables and the, the arrangement of chairs and space and, and so on. And they see in that physical space, the physical arrangement of space, the imprinting of ideology and power. And there's this entire sort of pushback against this sort of top-down model of communication at the conference. And they, you know, this sort of, you know, um, one-to-many, you know, model of, of communication, which a number of these sort of dissidents at the conference, these conferences see as totally outmoded in the age of multimedia. And that, the, you know, the, it's another sign of the fact that these designers are dinosaurs is that they have these conferences where, like, people just lecture at other people. And it's like the least democratic thing possible. So, so there is that moment where I'm actually talking about, you know, the sort of physical space of knowledge production in the context of like the look of, of actual conferences. But I mean, your point about, um, how there is a certain way of understanding an open space as conducive to a certain kind of creative, uh, practice that moves holistically across disciplines and it's sort of therapeutic and freeing and more humane, you know, and that could be in like a maker space, right. To use that jargon in a library with like mid-century modern furniture in it or, or sort of imitations of that furniture. That idea I think does is a legacy of the mid-century period. And it's, and it's not just a legacy of um, designers like the Eameses and their, um, ideas about sort of creative, open-minded, um, practices. But it's also like specific to the Cold War think tank, the Cold War, you know, mil- sort of operations research during the Cold War. And, and, and one of the things that, you know, my book does and, and Pamela Lee, who's a really great art historian, has a relatively new book called Think Tank Aesthetics that talks about this. Fred Turner talks a little bit about this too. There's a great book, um, uh, on, on sort of mid-century social science called the open mind, like these sort of I- ideas about open-mindedness are, are so bound up in, you know, a, a sort of Cold War model of the democratic 
personality over and against this narrowly conformist and overly specialized, you know, you know, bogey of a, of a, of a Russian. And so, yeah, I mean, there, there are all kinds of echoes between what you're describing and, and what the book takes up in certain places. And, And what I try to do is not, is to acknowledge that there is a overlap between the sort of creative interdisciplinary practice of these designers that I think is interesting and, and, and not sort of nefarious. And, and I try not to simply collapse that with a certain rhetoric of, of, you know, boundary breaking interdisciplinarity that is the legacy of World War II and, and, and an emergent sort of think tank culture. They're connected, but they're not always identical. It was very brief, but you, you raised another sort of important point about all this that, that jumped out to me too in reading the, the intro to the book and a couple other sort of related things here is that to not approach these works, to not approach these uh, objects or these thinkers or these designers necessarily with sharp suspicion that they are criminal masterminds and they are here to, you know, distort, distort the, and warp the brains of children and, and make them very, very specific kind of neoliberal subject, right? I mean, perhaps right. that's an outcome. That's not to say that's not an outcome, but to approach right. it, um, more generously than that, I think is, I think is really important to actually making these things make sense and figuring out their, their, their real place, right? Which also sounds so important, you know, in even allowing or a project like this to exist and sort of setting aside the previous criticisms of, of you know, or the previous dismissals of these types of films as being not cinematic enough or not, or not saying something important right. enough, it, you know, technical, technical as they may be, approaching them with that kind of openness, right, mm-hmm. is, is really critical to, to this whole thing. So there's there's a couple other ways that there's a couple other things I wanted to ask you about. The first was you you had alluded to this earlier, but I was wondering if you would take one or two of the Ames films that you think are really the most interesting and sort of walk us through like the function of these films and like how they sort how they fit into this grander narrative and how they help us understand the um, designing of the of the happy of the happy subject. Sure, I'll I'll talk about one that I talk about. That I haven't talked about yet, but that I talk about in, in the first chapter, which is called Happy Furniture on the Media Environments of the Eames Chair. And it's a film called S73. It was made in the early 1950s. It's, it's one of the first films that the Eames has made for Herman Miller. And it's a film, it's given the name S73 because it's named after a, a sofa in the Herman Miller furniture catalog. It's a compact sofa. It's a, um, if you buy the sofa now, it's, you know, it costs you about 4,000 bucks. It is a film about a sofa, a compact sofa, um, that to me, uh, embodies this sort of broader allegory of happy living. And it also embodies the Eames's way of thinking about furniture, not as this isolated thing, but within a more expansive set of technical networks and this sort of a broader media environment. So if, you, if the film is about 10 minutes long, check it out on, on um, uh, YouTube if you get a chance, or the Eames just have a, a YouTube, the Eames office has a YouTube channel that I know has S73 on it. So what it, it begins with, it introduces this sofa in this complex logistical drama involving containerization and um, shipping. Right. And it begins by talking about shipping as a, a sort of problem of the designer 
and and that it introduces the compact sofa as a way of you know helping to solve the problem and cut costs on on shipping. So it shows us that right the sort of logistical network of you know sort of nascent containerization at the beginning. It also shows us the how the sofa is is this sort of complicated technical object that has to be it's like this almost like a spaceship that lands in this happy couple's house and they can't just sit on it they can't just set it up and sit on it they have to learn how to sit on it so the process of becoming acclimated to this object of furniture doesn't just it, it happens over time you have to sort of go through the sort of ritualistic process of learning how to use the object and in the Eames's case in this film they they actually show the the couple setting up the sofa sort of like building a piece of ikea furniture right imagine that in different times so they use accelerated motion and they show a couple one couple doing it slowly and here i kind of in my readers i'm sort of punning on you know the couple doing it slowly and the couple taking it um uh, going more quickly and and they show it in accelerated motion right so this happy couple sets it up and then they show this they have a flashback where the entire design history of the sofa is revealed. And so they kind of materialize the knowledge work, the work of the Eames office, the work of the prototyping that went into the, um, the production of the sofa, um, which is amazing. So there's a kind of acknowledgement of the labor behind this thing. Um, then there are moments where we get the sort of Eamesian concern with prediction and speculation and control because there's a close-up of a, a, a kind of synthetic fabric on the sofa. And it, and the, the voiceover, it's Charles Eames' voiceover, says something like, there's no predicting what may happen in the life of a sofa. And you see this jelly, um, peanut butter and jelly sandwich, it's been um, smacked onto the sofa, right? And so here you see, you know, the, the Eames' sort of obsession with contingency and chance and how to make furniture in a way that sort of can even, you know, defend against the, the threat of the, you know, spilled peanut butter and jelly sandwich on, on the sofa. So in this small 10 minute film, there's this extraordinary, you know, introduction to, you know, the, the range of, of technical and medial networks that the film, that the Eames are interested in. It, it then shows the sofa in different settings. So it shows it in a dentist's office. It shows it in an art gallery. So it sort of aestheticizes it. And then it also shows it, and here we get sort of a gendering of mid-century furniture, in a home where the sofa faces a television that's turned off. And on the sofa, we don't see her because of the way the shot is framed, is a mom who's fallen asleep on the sofa because she's frigging exhausted. Right. And, and you see this kid come out of the frame, the mom's son, and, and he puts his hand on the mom's head to wake her up. Right. And so the mom has just had this moment where she's finally, you know, able to like get a brief moment of rest, respite, and the kid wakes her up. Right. And somehow there's a sort of relationship between the mom's sleep and and the TV that's turned off. So there's all these times, these a variety of temporalities of labor and leisure that are allegorized mm-hmm. in this one, one film. And so I, I, that's just one example. It's an amazing film, but it's one example of a range of films that I sort of talk through that do this sort of allegorical work. And here I'm, I'm borrowing on, I'm sure you know this, there's a really great book by David James on avant-garde cinema called Allegories of Production. 
And, and so I sort of riff on James's idea that a range of, that films are often finding a way to allegorize their own conditions of, of production, their, their own conditions of making. And I, I explore the film through that model. And this is one of those things that I love too about, I mean, what, what you're describing as well as just any number of sort of industrial type films or these sort of informational type films where that are, that are, uh, you know, they are, uh, produced for, cons- for consumers, right? Like, right. I mean, obviously they're produced for consumers, but they're produced to sort of embody a type of consumerism in certain mm-hmm. ways in, in thinking through and, one of the things I always, I'm always so interested by is the ways in which they sort of depict family life or what it oh, means, yeah. to, what, it, what, especially what it means to be a mother and, and yeah. in the drudgery and the hard and the hard work, uh, uh, of motherhood, you know, and all of those things. I, I find those things endlessly fascinating. And especially in moments like what you're describing, where there is that a hope for, for a respite from, from, exactly. from, from the children, from the chores, from those things. Like here, we at Eames, we have, we have, or we at Henry Miller, we have given you this object, yeah. which will give you this, this ability to rest and recharge exactly. and be happy and own, right. you know, and own and possess yourself in ways that are productive for your family. Right. I mean, it's right. amazing stuff that you see in those movies. Yeah. No, it's it truly, and, and, and there's a way in which, the movie, it, like many industrial films, you, you, you can think about that. And the fact that, you know, you've got these two couples and so on. Yeah. It is like this highly normative, you know, scenario, right? That is getting, you know, and, you know, sort of the gender normativity of it is like almost parodic on the one hand, right? On the other hand, part of what I, I try to show in my reading of that film and part of what I argue throughout with the Eames is, is that what you see in their work is this sort of a- deep anxiety, about the sort of status of the natural and the normal and, and the sense that, you know, what is so-called normative or natural is totally up for grabs and, and has to be actively and creatively produced and, and manipulated. So for example, you know, it's a normative scenario that it's the mom on the sofa getting woken up by, by her son. But the fact that this, the film also acknowledges that this piece of this beautifully designed sofa is like a spaceship that lands from another planet and to be acclimated into the domestic interior is something that is going to happen o- over time, right? That that sort of new scene of domesticity, you know, will become nature, right? But, but it's, it's second nature. It only will become natural over time through habit, through organization and, and so on. And that to me, in a way seems connected to something I talk about quite a bit in the film, which is, the way so many of the, the way much of the Eames and other designers thinking about sort of creative making in the new media, the new technologies of the mid century is a, a kind of anxious technophilia that is, uh, that we can only understand on the, against the backdrop of this sort of fear of mid century technics run amok and this sort of extravagant manipulation of nature through technical means that, you know, atomic science is complicit in and so on. And so, you know, that, you know, in these films, for example, that the Indus make sponsored by IBM, one of them is called um, the information machine, creative man and the, and the data processor. And it positions the, the IBM mainframe in this sort of long history of uh, man, quote unquote, ability to control his environment. So it's a very anxious you know, humanism about 
environmental control and manipulation that is always aware, keenly aware of the ways in which that those projects of environmental control and management threaten to spiral out of control. And there's always a kind of nascent, you know, environmental catastrophe on the other side of, of that fantasy of control. Yeah. It's looming right in the background, right? I mean, and you see those things parodied in any any number of films (laughs) and in in different kinds of media. And, And there's a, the way you're describing it too is, you know, it, it almost sounds to me like there's a certain uh, Criswelliness, you know, as well. Oh yeah. Here's this strange and unusual thing, but here's how you, dear viewer, will get used to it, or how you experience it in your everyday life, you know, uh, right. or it, it is is a part of the normative environment in some ways, or will become a part of it. You know, there's, you can almost, I can almost, I can hear Criswell's voice at the beginning, like doing 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 yeah. these things. Yeah. And you can, I mean, and in a way that's connected to, you know, just a kind of, this is what ta- I suppose on some level, tastemakers, people that think of themselves as tastemakers or who, who are part of like the quote unquote elevation of, of taste or helping people understand what good, good taste is. This is part of what they do. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, I think a very ambivalent yeah. process in the, in the work of the industry. So, so the last thing I wanted to ask you about is, you know, like I said, I really, this book, this is a book that, you know, reading through the introduction and the other stuff is one that really speaks to me in a lot of different ways as someone who dabbles a little bit in, in design work and is very invested in visual culture and visual studies and all these things. I mean, this is something I'll carry with me for a long time, but beyond the immediate audience, right? So where do you see something like, how do you see something like this developing and where do you think we go from here? And I know that you had a special issue at post 45 and, and as mm-hmm. I read through some of the introductory materials to that, I mean, that seemed to be part of uh, a direction to take uh, a critical study like this one. So, so, but as you, as, you know, as, as the thinker who put these things together, where do you imagine this heading? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that I, I talk, I touch about, touch on it a little bit in the introduction is I, I see the book as the beginning of a more serious taking on board within film studies of the histories of design. Right. And, and so I, I think that the book is, I mean, there are other very good books that are starting to do this and, you know, I won't drop all the names now, but, but, you know, film studies is just now beginning to start taking seriously design and the histories of design. The part of the reason that film studies hasn't done this yet. And I, I talk about this in the, the latter two chapters when I try to sort of think about what a designer film theory looks like, like right? what, what, and how is that different than sort of canonical accounts of, of a mid century so-called classical film theory. The reason that that didn't happen is when film studies emerged as a discipline, trying to sort of claim disciplinary specificity at mid, at mid century, you know, in the fifties, late fifties and into the early 1960s, it did so by cleaving itself off from uh, social scientific approaches to media of communication. Right. And, and it was precisely the, and it, it sort of reinvented itself as a, a sort of human humanistic liberal arts discipline in a sort of new critical mode. That's how film studies was born through professional organizations like the thing called the Society for Cinematologists, which was, you know, what is now the Journal of the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. So this tradition of designer film theory was 
always deeply connected to these social scientific approaches to questions of mass media. And so, you know, in terms of like where to go from here, there's an entirely different domain terrain of mid-century Anglo-American media theory that that generally has been taken up in the discipline of sort of communications studies, but has not really been taken up in film studies proper. And so I sort I sort of suggest ways ways to do that. That's one avenue for you know future work. The other one is you know one thing that I've gotten as you can kind of tell that I've gotten interested in in this project is is just thinking about management and and sort of managerial culture. And you know I know that you think about neoliberalism in your own work. You know one of the things that I I suppose the book narrates in a in a kind of tacit way is how the sort of mid-century liberal managerialism of the Eameses and a range of other designers in their ambit anticipates a form of of certain forms of of neoliberalism, right? But the more I sort of, you know, thought about the kind of managerial cultures in which modernism or through which modernism was institutionalized, the more I was like, wow, I think many people in my field really haven't read this stuff like you know, haven't don't really have a, a a sort of solid base in the history of management theory of organizational psychology of that whole kind of social scientific tradition forming approaches to management and it's totally fascinating and there are you know i mean you know like reading P- peter drucker for example is you know which i found myself doing in moments in this project it's totally fascinating. So for me, you know, one thing that I'm thinking about doing is I'm in the early stages of a new project that's specifically thinking about resource management and a, and a kind of modernist design tradition connected to the management of resources. Part of that is obviously the whole idea of the management of natural resources, which has a new you know, urgency, obviously, in our current climate catastrophe. But it's also the management of human resources, the management of, of attention, right? The management of information economy. So, so one direction that I'm going with this is a kind of book on a, a sort of managerial modernism that's thinking about the role of modernist design in a, a project of, of resource management. And I have to say that there are moments where I think given when we see, um, managers screwing things up significantly, and I think we've seen a lot of that, you know, seen a lot of bad management, examples of bad management over the last four years. It makes me long for, you know, these moments of sort of enlightened liberal management. And I have to, I have to find myself sort of fighting my own, you know, impulses or my own sort of inclination to say, you know, maybe, you know, good liberal management isn't terrible. You know, it's certainly better than, than terrible management. Yeah. Um, so I'm, so I'm, I'm in the process of working through a, this, a, a new project that will help me. Yeah. think think that through a little bit more moving towards less badness feels like a feels like a good way to... <laughs> exactly less bad if we can't ever get to easy and goodness i'll take less badness yeah just less badness is, is where i'm at right now. less bad less bad design well I, this has been a fantastic conversation i've really appreciated this i feel like i feel like i got a lot out of this and i'm really grateful for your time and of course uh, is there anything else you wanted to add before we go no, I just want to say thank you for the conversation. It's all, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I'm delighted that, you know, you had a chance to look at the introduction to the book 
and um, that it, you know, intersected with some of the things that you care about and you're interested about. So I'm, I always love it when the book finds a, an interested reader. Oh, yes. It, it, it's found a home. So, <laughs> so all right. Excellent. Thank you so much for spending some time with us here at Prerequisites. This episode of the program is supported by the Russell B. Nye Fellowship for Interdisciplinary Curricular Enhancement in English from the Michigan State University Department of English. You can find out more about MSU English, including graduate and undergraduate programs at english.msu.edu. This episode of Prerequisites was written, produced, and engineered by Zach Cruzy. Until next time, this is Dr. Zach Cruzy. Good day. <laughs>